So Hebrews chapter 9 from verse 1. It's quite a big scripture today. Bear with me. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of, the in, of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood uh, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places, every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put sin by the, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered, to, offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. 
But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he was perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he added, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Christianity is wonderfully diverse. I like that. Sometimes I just look around the room and just think, wow, you know, we would probably have never otherwise come together in one room the way we do if it wasn't for the one thing that we all have in common. Jesus. It's beautiful, isn't it, the diversity in Jesus' church? Uh, it gets a bit tricky at times, though, doesn't it? Because diversity means that people think differently about certain things. It gets even trickier still if you sort of go up a level, I guess, and, and try to think about that diversity in Jesus' church at the, at the more global level of, of you know, all the branches and, and different denominations in Jesus' church or around Jesus' church. Things that are going on. A lot of very different things happen in the name of Jesus. Some of that is inevitable, obviously. I mean, given the sheer diversity of Jesus' people, it's hardly surprising that there'd be different styles of worship and so forth across his church. But some of the things that churches think and do might bear more scrutiny. Because if Christians are all broken people as we are, being restored to God as we are, then some of the things that we do together as a church are also going to be a bit broken, a bit wayward at times and in need of being brought back unto God. Uh, so how can we know? How can we know when things are just, you know, different because of our different tastes, you know, the diverse and healthy expressions of our same faith, or when we or other people or other churches have gone astray. How do we know, to take the language of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 13, how do we know that we're not just refusing to come under Jesus' feet? Well, I would say that we have come under Jesus only when we have come under his word. And to that end, Hebrews has been giving us some great clarity on the Christian faith. Uh, and today's section, chapter 9, all the way through chapter 10, 18, gives us even more of that clarity. Uh, but it'll be hard to think through this passage today uh, because not all churches today sit under this word. 
On the other hand, it will be good for us to work through this because there's a couple of very sweet and powerful gospel truths written all through this passage if you're willing to receive them. One, Jesus has changed forever uh, the old liturgical role of priests in regard to our sin. Forever. And two, what Jesus did to atone for our sin so that we can be for, uh, uh, forgiven, well, it's good and done. It is good and done. Uh, the first point's actually pretty easy to see if you've been with us these last weeks because it carries on from where we've been these last few weeks, thinking about Jesus here in Hebrews as our new high priest. Uh, more specifically here, uh, chapter 9 takes us into new detail, the kind of ministry that the old priests used to do and the sacrifices that they used to offer on behalf of the people's sin, what we would call the liturgical aspect of priest and priesthoods. Uh, and that what Jesus has now done in, in his sacrifice for our sins and, and his ministry of that which he's done for us, well, it's made all that old liturgical priesthood done by human hands redundant. So there's point one, I guess, in a nutshell. Jesus has taken on the liturgical aspect of priesthood to intercede with us, uh, uh, for us, uh, with something he has offered up now to atone for our sin himself. You see it in the text here in chapter 9, uh, by way of the contrast it sets up at the beginning uh, between the old system and the old way of doing this and the new that he has brought, the, the earthly teaching example uh, that came first to set us up for the heavenly reality of these things in Jesus in the very same vein uh, as we were last week in chapter 9 and verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Uh, for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. A very elaborate setup it was in that first uh, earthly uh, template, as it was, but it was all uh, therefore only symbolic. And all of that was uh, in, the, in the most holy place was for that ceremony one day per year as the text goes on. We've thought about that in recent weeks. Uh, Hebrews has mentioned it quite a bit. It was all just symbolic, though, in verse 9. Symbolic, literally there, it was a parable. It was a parable of the truth that was to come. And then Jesus came. The truth came with, uh, you know, what those things had pointed forward to. It came. Jesus came, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If the old liturgy was just a symbol, a parable of this true thing in Christ, then the old liturgy and those who administered that liturgy have now passed into history. 
Eventually that might make us wonder, why do some churches then still have priests? And I can't answer that question. Uh, To be blunt, I don't see how you can read these chapters of Hebrews we're studying uh, and uh, still see some kind of need for that kind of priesthood. Nor, personally, can I see the need for elaborate cathedrals to to sort of represent what Jesus uh, has done. Nor uh, altars, certainly I can't see a need for altars, nor sacrifices, of course, which is what altars are for. Nor even a a subtly separated section of the place of worship that only a certain priest can go into. Uh, nor indeed, therefore, for special curtains and so forth, nor golden implements or or linen robes. But that's just me. That's just me. To me, those things were part of the old covenant, which were just symbolic. So I can't tell you, for example, why in Roman Catholicism there is a very different understanding then of the Eucharist, uh, where a priest, turning his back on the people, uh, lifts up the bread and wine from the altar to re-offer it as a sacrifice towards an image of God on behalf of our sin. Other churches too have modelled their liturgy of the Eucharist in that way. But all of that that they used to do is now past, according to Hebrews. That was the way things were done in the Old Covenant. Jesus does that liturgical duty for us now as our great high priest. Now he does that for us in the very throne room of God in heaven. Under the new covenant, he brought us. As chapter 9 and verse 15 makes clear. Therefore he is the mediator. Man, lock that in. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 24 too, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. No, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember Jesus' once for all time sacrifice as he commanded us to do a blessing that he gave us to celebrate together as we remember that. But there is no place for us to try to present any further sacrifice. And so, nor therefore for the old liturgical duties around those sacrifices. Jesus does that now. This was the whole purpose in Jesus' coming. Chapter 10 drives the point home. Chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest stands daily. This is in the old system. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Wow. Wow. But when Christ offered for all time 
a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How many ways can he say it in one sentence? And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering. Jesus has done it all. What Roman Catholicism does during the Mass, as they call it, it just doesn't fit with the new covenant in which Jesus has now done all this for us. What they do fits with the old covenant, which was just a pattern of what was to come. And I'm sorry, but as I say, I I can't tell you why it is that they do like so. Nor can I tell you why those priests regulate, regulate the remission of sins through the sacrament of penance or claim to have a treasury of merit, as they call it, a treasury of merit that's based on all of the good things done by Jesus and by Mary and by certain saints who in Roman Catholic teaching did more than was needed to get into heaven a treasury that we can purchase from buying indulgences of that merit, as they call them, from the church so as to ease our loved one's time in purgatory, a place that they think exists between here and heaven where where we will have to pay off, or people like you and I at least, will have to pay off our small sins. As at June 2023, that is still the official doctrine that they teach. But every step of logic in that is entirely contrary to the word of God here in scripture. Hebrews itself has rejected all of that thinking right the way through. In chapter 9 and 10 today we see that there's, there's no way the priests under the old covenant could actually atone for our sins. Couldn't have done it. It was a symbol. And the new covenant that's now here is entirely contingent on one thing and one thing alone for the remission of sins. Jesus' blood, which he has offered up for our sin once for all time. As it happens, what that other doctrine actually does is create a whole different economy of sin and repentance and forgiveness and redemption that undermines what Jesus has done in his once for all time sacrifice and it's simply contrary to his word and yet again I I cannot tell you why they think and do like so but I do know and I do believe that the word of God sets things clear, that in his blood, Jesus has made full and final atonement for our sin. 
And if we come to him in humble repentance, he will forever intercede with us before God. And on that basis alone, the new covenant in his blood. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have now come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How did he secure that? With his blood. And chapter 10 brings this point home again. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was just a pattern pointing us forward to Christ. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And by that will, verse 10, by that will of the Father that the Son should come and do this, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There is no concept of purgatory in these scriptures, brothers and sisters. You won't be paying off all your little sins. Jesus paid it all. And praise God, we should say, because nor could you pay off your sin if you had to. And nor, of course, should we think of little sins that somehow don't incur the holy and righteous wrath of God. There is death and then judgment, chapter 9 and verse 27. But thanks be to God because Christ has paid for all of our sin one sacrifice he offered for all time. The only question of the gospel then in these scriptures is whether we will come to Jesus and sit under him to receive all these things. Don't be distracted by church teachings. Come to the word of God in Jesus Christ, which says this, in simple repentance, that is, a simple turning from your sins to sit under him, you will find the forgiveness of God because Jesus has atoned for your sin. He will save you from judgment forever because he now, is the high priest. It's vital that we understand the whole purpose of Jesus' coming. He came to atone for our sin. He came to atone for our sin once for all time with his own flesh and blood. It says in chapter 9 and verse 12 and 14 and verse 15 too. And in verse 23, it says it again in verse 24, 25 and 26 again and chapter 10 and verse 5 and verse 7 verse 10 12 14 and in verse 17 it says it again and once more verse 18 Jesus has paid for our sin with his own flesh and blood once for all time this then is done atonement has been made and offered up for all who will but come and receive it from Jesus. 
This same scripture also makes us think then not just about what has now passed, but what will yet come. Because it also turns our thoughts to to Jesus' second coming. In chapter 9 and verse 27, just as as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you waiting for him like so, is the question. Here's a couple of uh, gospel reality checks, just to be sure. And notice the once emphasis uh, in these things. Chapter 9, verse 27, we die once and then we face judgment. There's no reincarnation hope or any such thing. No do-over. There's no murky grey area where we might be able to work, work off some of our sin debt. Once we die and then judgment. And so too is the point the writer's getting to here about the onceness of Christ in terms of all of that. He came once to die once to bear the sins of many by which he has now atoned for the sins of all who repent and trust in him. So there's no need for any second chance fuzzy zones in all of this. It is done, as Jesus said in his first coming about that. He has secured for us, chapter 9 and verse 12, an eternal redemption. He appeared at the end of the ages, as verse 26 puts it, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, chapter 10 and verse 10. Our conscience is therefore purified in him, chapter 9, verse 14. God will remember our sins no more, chapter 10 and verse 17. And where there is forgiveness of these things, thank you, Lord Jesus, there is no longer any offering for sin. Chapter 10 of verse 18, in terms of Christ's work to atone for our sin, which is what saves us from judgment after death, well, that is now done. We've established this, I believe. So, so when he comes back, therefore, if we move on in this passage, when he comes back to appear a second time, chapter 9 of verse 28, it won't be for all that. He has come for all that. It will simply be to bring in that salvation for all those who have repented and come under him. It's already real, brothers and sisters, that we are saved if we find ourselves that way, but it still has to be realised. The flip side, of course, is that those not trusting in Christ will still be condemned in the judgment because judgment too must still be realised. But there won't be some second kind of hope when Jesus returns. He's already appeared uh, once for that with a, with a once-for-all-time offering on behalf of our sin. If a person trusts in that, they will be saved. If another person doesn't trust in that, then they won't. I think we kind of imagine a, an elaborate court case. Maybe we'd be able to hire some top-dollar lawyers or something, be able to plead our cause before God as if we know something about these things that God doesn't know Uh, or something like that, it must go in our deep subconscious. But really, what kind of case has any of us really got? 
He has already brought an unfathomably gracious atonement to grant us eternal forgiveness. And if people won't take that, then I'm sorry, but their case will be closed. All of which is actually fairly straightforward from Scripture, if you're willing to read it. And even here in this one letter we've been studying in Hebrews, Jesus came once to make atonement forever for our sin. And he will come again to bring all of that to pass. But what about now? What about now? Well, where is Jesus now? And what is he doing between those two great things? Well, this scripture tells us in chapter 10 and verse 12, Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So between his first and second comings, Jesus sits at the right hand of God waiting for everything to be put in subjection to him. As indeed, if you recall, chapters 1 and 2, that's how it framed this whole letter. So when he gets up, so to speak, to to come back, wouldn't it therefore be when everything has been put under his feet, one way or the other? In other words, when Jesus returns, it will be in finality. He'll return in victory and in power. The scriptures say there won't be any blurry kind of phase when, where he's kind of back but doesn't really have dominion over everything. Or any of us can therefore you know, hope to strike up some kind of second chance deal with him. Or maybe we could put it this way, there won't be a third coming of Jesus Christ. No, he came once to bear the sins of many. And he will come back once to bring all of this to fruition and save his people from the judgment of God as it comes on everyone else. Hebrews doesn't tell us when. doesn't tell us when Jesus will come back for this. In fact, the scriptures keep that detail wholly out of our possible reach. Jesus himself, when he was here, said that no one knows that detail and that, and that even he didn't know that detail at that time, but only the Father. We can be sure he'll only return the once, but we simply can't know when. Ever noticed, though, how many people obsess over that detail and, and make predictions about his return? A classic example is William Miller, uh, who in the 1840s, after spending like 14 years or something studying uh, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, he predicted that Jesus would return in, in March 1844. In March 1844, Jesus didn't return. Miller recalculated, more precisely he said, and he declared, actually, it would be October 1844. But in October 1844, Jesus didn't return. And all the Millerites, as they'd been known, the large following that had been drawn in by his teachings on this, they fell into utter dismay. over Their prophet was wrong. It became known as the great disappointment. And it's easy to see why, isn't it? And yet a remnant of that group uh, formed together, still obsessed with this matter, and they revived that old prophecy in the 1860s. And you might wonder, 
How on earth could you make that failed prophecy still fly when Jesus didn't return in 1844? Ellen White claimed that all Miller got wrong, actually, was the place of Jesus' second coming. She decided that he'd been right about the date. It's just that in 1844, Jesus didn't come back here, you see. He entered into the heavenly sanctuary where he could begin a, a second phase, a mysterious second phase of his atoning work. But that just doesn't stack up with what Hebrews says here over and over, does it? It wasn't 1844, it was more like AD 34 uh, that Jesus entered the heavenly places with his ascension after he came to do the once-off atonement he came for. He went into the innermost, holiest of holies of heaven. Chapter 9 and verse 11 makes it so, so clear. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus what? Thus securing an eternal redemption. There is nothing unfinished about that, is there? So too, at verse 24, Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Hallelujah. If we could picture to ourselves that the innermost, holiest of holiest of places in the heavenly sanctuary, then surely it is in the very presence of the living and almighty God at his throne, as we've been reading over and over in Hebrews. And Jesus is already there. He entered there when he ascended to heaven because his atoning work that he came to do, his sacrifice of his body to purify us from our sins has now been once and for all time done. Ellen White's prophecy, I'm sorry, it was as false as William Miller's. Nothing special happened on these things in 1844. But their movement continues to this day. A global Seventh-day Adventist church, they continue to argue that teaching. This is still all on their website, that Christ somehow began some second phase of his atoning ministry in heaven in, in 1844, which, if it were true, would mean that his first coming didn't achieve what everything he, Hebrews says it did, and, and would also mean that his return now is actually going to be stage three. They will not let a false prophecy go. That's what the problem is. But then what it flows to, you see, is that trying to make it stick needs some kind of new doctrine that goes above and beyond and outside what these scriptures do say. The scriptures do not speak of some third stage of Jesus' ministry in saving us. Other than, of course, that between his two comings, he is seated at the right hand of God in the most holy place of heaven where he went with his ascension and where he will forever intercede for us, his people, and where he is waiting for all things to be brought under his feet. 
Which brings me to the reason we need to think through and wrestle with this scripture today in terms of all the things that, that are said and done in the modern church in Jesus' name. And, and these two examples of, of how church teachings can sometimes fall out of line with God's word brings me back more to the point as to how we can discern between the good and the healthy diversity of Christian thought and practice uh, and wayward error in Jesus' church. I haven't said all this to single out this or that church for criticism. Jesus has many people in both of those movements. The examples just highlight what any church could do, what this church could do if it sets out its doctrine without the proper calibration of God's holy word. Other things like, like church tradition, and our own Christian experience and our reason and our intellect, they can all inform our response to God as a church. But when those things don't line up with the word of God in Scripture, it actually clarifies very, very quickly what authority we're actually sitting under. Is it the word given us by God? Or is it something that has slowly built up from us? If our doctrine doesn't line up and fit with God's word, we've got a problem. We've got a problem because everything will one day come under Jesus' feet. And creating a different economy of salvation, say, to what he has secured for us, as in example one, or, or, or speculating about what he told us nobody knows and then, and then having to blow out our doctrine to kind of make that stick, as in example two, is that's not what it looks like to sit under his feet. That's what it looks like to put ourselves and our ideas above him. And surely from this scripture we've read today, we don't want to be in that state when Jesus does come back. If that be so, then we must engage with his scripture, this very word of God that we have. We must engage with it so we will, we will know if we are really coming under Jesus' feet. And so we will know too when the ideas of our friends and family or the, or the teachings of the church have gone astray. Seriously, we wander into all kinds of territory with our thoughts and, and so on. Many people have wandered very far, and many churches do, even to the point that they end up undermining what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done and what Jesus will yet do. So we have to weigh things up. We have to weigh things up, what other people tell us. We must watch our church to make sure we truly are submitted to the word of God about Jesus Christ and so that we'll know too, if it's not just our doctrine, you see, but our lives, if our lives are surrendered under him too because what we think flows into what we do. Heavy stuff. But we have to wrestle our way through. Let's now just, just pray about, about the good gospel in these scriptures that we've just read. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for what this scripture here has told us today. Uh, 14 sometimes, I think it was, uh, Father, uh, that Jesus has come once to pay for our sin and for all time. 
14 times just in this passage, Father, it has said, said that truth to us. So obviously we need to be hammered and hammered with this truth. Obviously there's something in us that is stubborn and resistant to this word. Uh, Father, 14 times therefore it must tell us that we are sinners. Well, there's one point of stubbornness. We pray you break that down. 14 times though it has given us the cure. It calls us just into humble repentance, Lord, to receive what Jesus has done and that too can be hard, so we pray you'd break that down in our hearts. Have us come and sit under Jesus' feet. Let our thoughts and our words and our uh, practices come into line with what he has called us to in light and, and in wonder of what he has done for us and will yet do. And Father, we pray for the whole church, not just our church. We pray that your word uh, would bring everything under Jesus' feet. We pray you'd give us wisdom about things that need to be uh, seen and identified and, and then managed and corrected. Pray you'd give us humility to be corrected when we go wrong. Let your grace continue to flow upon us. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And as always, Father, if there's anything I've said today that is not of you, then have it burn away in fire. And indeed, have it all fizzle away anyway, Lord, so that only your good word remains. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.